Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Lord God, uh, we um, we never want to open your word and look at it in the flesh. We want your spirit to help uh, to help us to be here, to illuminate it for us. It's uh, worthless to us unless we you uh, interpret it for us and you guide us as we look into your word. So open our eyes this morning, Lord, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're new here, I don't know if you know how this works, but the teachers rotate. And so we always say to anyone who's new is if you don't like it, there'll be a new teacher next week. So just come back, right? And you won't have to get this teacher again for, I don't know, seven weeks or something like that. So thank you very much for letting me come and teach. I want you to know it's so much less stressful to be up here talking than it is to be back there running all that stuff. <laughs> something goes wrong every week, even this morning, new things, glitches. They were just switching laptops at the last minute, this for summary every week. But it's so much better now that we actually own and control the equipment, so things are good. So good morning, everyone. Here, let me start off. I am going to pick up where Greg left off. We're going to talk about the second half of Galatians. And, but I'll start off with kind of a thought-provoking question, and then I will come back to it later. If you were around, standing around talking about me four or five years from now, and, and, and you heard someone say, ah, oh, it's a shame about Jim. It's a shame about Jim. Why? What happened? He, um, he's fallen from grace. He's fallen from grace. You'd say, oh, wow, what happened? Is he not coming to Bible study anymore? He's not coming to church? He's living a life of open sin? You know, what is it? Now he's fallen from grace. What would you think? Probably what I would think. Think about that. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that later on in the study. Today we're talking about Galatians 4 through 6. This is what I want to cover for you with you today. I'm going to go through that gospel straight. Greg ended with that. He actually ended with what I think is one half of it. I'm going to do the other half of it and present the whole thing to you guys. I haven't done this. I haven't gone through the gospel illustration with you guys in about a year. So I think we're due. And you really cannot talk about Galatians without talking about it. So we'll go through it in the first few minutes uh, in its entirety. And uh, and some of you who are new have, have not seen it before, so we'll go through that. And then uh, we'll talk about the theology of personal rewards, what Galatians has to say about it, and then what true rewards really are. And so when we set these up, usually, usually we do these kind of outlines. What you'll say is, well, I'm talking about Galatians 4, 5, and 6. So point 1 is Galatians 4, point 2 is Galatians 5, point 3 is Galatians 6. And if we don't get to it, we don't get to it. Or you'll say, well, there's three major themes and the most important theme is number one, second most important theme is number two, third one is okay, if we don't get to it, we don't get to it. This one is set up, oh, another way I've, sometimes we talk about it is there are seven points in a row, and they all lead to number seven. So we got to go through all six to get to number seven, because seven is kind of like a climax. That's sometimes we talk that way too. This one is set up as problem-solution. Problem-solution. So a lot of the first part will be set up of the problem, second part is the solution. So as I'm going through that, you're going to say, wait a second, that doesn't sound right, or I'm not sure I agree with that, or, uh, or, or you might say, I know the solution, and I'm sure you all do. Don't steal my thunder. But if you, uh, you can go ahead and steal my thunder, it's fine. <laughs> but uh, if you, as you go through it, I think some of it will become clear. Now, as I get to the end, I'm going to try to save a lot of time at the end for questions. You can interrupt any time, but try to save time at the end for questions, and by that time, you might say, I still don't agree with you, and that's fine, too. So we'll have a nice discussion. That's why it's a Bible study. It's just neighborhood Bible study. All right. With that in mind, the gospel illustration, this is the way 
I usually start the illustration. And I'm going to say this in a way in case this is recorded later and people are listening to this on audio only so that someone just listening to the audio would understand it. What I have here is a, a illustration on the screen in front of you. And it is uh, on the left side, I have a little simple drawing. It looks like an L and there is a vertical axis. And at the top of that axis is the word holiness. And on the horizontal axis is time. And what we're talking about is world, re world religions, world religions. So in this way of looking at the world and in in world religions, they all work the same way. All world religions will say, there is a diagonal line that starts at the bottom left and moves to the top right. And what it means is that over time, you follow the rules of that religion and you get blessings. And if you don't follow the rules of that religion, you get curses. But the point of the religion is to follow the rules over time, be a better rule follower over time. And so you can be a better adherent to that religion. Now, I say that this is about religions, but actually every irreligious view on earth works the same way. So for, if you just say, I'm not religious, you could replace the word holiness with some anything else that's in the center of your life. Anything else that you say, if I have that, then I'll know my life is worthwhile. You could say it's personal fulfillment. Fine. Okay, a personal fulfillment is at the top. Over time, I want more personal fulfillment. And then I'll know my life is worthwhile. You could say comfort and ease. Okay, put that at the top, whatever you want. Whatever's at the center of your life, that is what you're shooting for. And over time, you want to get more of that, and then you know your life is worthwhile. We're talking about religion right now, so we'll say holiness or goodness or righteousness of some sort, but following the rules over time. All religions work this way, except Christianity. Christianity has a distinction. Christianity has the cross. And in this illustration, this view, the cross is at the bottom left corner. Because in this way of thinking, the cross starts you out in the Christian life. Grace starts you out in the Christian life. Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, wiped all those sins away, and so by grace, through faith, you are saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. You get salvation. But in this view, after that, your sanctification is the single line. So Jesus did it all to get you into heaven. But after that, everything you do for the, in the Christian life is all up to your hard work and effort. Now, you might say grace, you know, grace helps. God helps those who help themselves. So grace is there to help you do good things and to climb up the line. But basically, it's up to you through your hard work and effort to climb this line. Jesus starts you off. That's, that's justification, but then sanctification is the line. Sanctification is your progress in the Christian life to be a strong Christian, a better Christian, okay? That's one way to view the Christian life. That's on the left side of the panel. Now, on the right side, I'm going to draw the same graph. Oh, wait, I always forget this. I've got three little arrows on the screen, and there's three little arrows that point to the line, and those represent all the Christian things you do, all your activities, all your good works. You're serving in the church. You're coming to Bible study. You're reading the Word. All that stuff, they're all little arrows pointing to the line because they're little notches on your belt. They're steps on the stairway to heaven, okay? Now, same graph on the right side. Holiness is on the vertical axis. Time is on the horizontal axis. And I'm going to start, like Greg did last week, so you saw this just last week, a uh, diagonal line that starts in the halfway up the, the vertical line, vertical axis. And this is a upwardly sloping line as well. It is not your improving spiritual performance over time, like it is on the left side. Rather, it is your growing awareness over time of God's holiness. Your growing awareness of, of God's holiness. And you get that awareness largely through the act of worship. Worship is not for his benefit, it's for ours. God already knows how great he is. It's our souls that need to become more in tune with that reality. God's real holiness is a parallel line a billion miles up. We're just not aware of it. We're growing in our awareness of it over time. At the same starting point of that line, there's another diagonally, downward diagonally sloping line, and that is my sin. That represents my growing awareness over time of my sin. My actual sin is a parallel line a billion miles down. I'm just not aware of it. 
But at the beginning of my Christian life, I was aware that there was a gap between me and him, and I needed the cross to fill that gap. And so I draw a little cross between the two lines towards the left side. But then over time, as you grow in Christ, you grow more aware of God's holiness, more aware of your own sin. And so the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this view of the Christian life is sanctification by reflecting back on your justification. Someone asked a question last week, how does that verse fit in? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Tom, I think it was you. How, in Philippians, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, it definitely doesn't mean work for your salvation with fear and trembling. But what's to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? What would it mean? It means reflecting back on your salvation. See, in this view on the left, you graduate from your salvation. You had Your salvation was, I got saved in Christ when I was 14 years old. That was a long time ago. Now I'm in sanctification. I'm doing all these good works to climb a single line. This view, you never leave it. You're always working out your, your salvation. Hebrews 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's such a great salvation. You're always reflecting back on your how the magnitude of it, and it grows over time. So over time, you say, it's even greater than I thought it was. Incredible. So always your salvation, salvation. It's reflect just sanctification, the reflection back on your justification. But you never leave the justification behind. And then all the little things you do in the Christian life are not, not just on your belt to climb the single line. All the things you do, reading the Word, memorizing Scripture, everything, it's all pointing you back to Jesus, 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 all the time. Not for getting credit climbing up the line. It's just pointing you back to Jesus. All the disciplines of the Christian life, do them, yes. But they always, they're all about Jesus, not about you. And then, as a result of all that, your life does change. Your life does change. But, but it, and so I have here a uh, line that starts at the bottom left corner, slopes gradually upward, but it's a dotted line. It's dotted for a reason, because your changed life, your improved spiritual performance, is not the focus of your life. In fact, you're not even primarily, it's not, you're not even that aware of it. In the judgment in Matthew 25, Jesus comes by and says to the sheep, the good ones, he says, come into my you know, heaven, you, uh, you, uh, when I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. You did all these things. You were really great moral people. And the sheep, remember what the sheep say? The sheep say, when do we do that? I don't remember doing that at all. And they were genuinely moral people. You say, you, you, Jesus is com commending them for their moral behavior. It wasn't, they weren't making it up. They were like, they were great people. They say, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. My Christian life was just about you. Their lives were changed, but they weren't really that aware of it. Dotted line, just moving upward. Okay, that's the double line and the single line. Now, I used to think people, and I've met people, who had a, have a preference for the single line. You explain all this, and they say, yeah, that's nice, but I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not buying it. I like the single line. Why? And I used to think there were two reasons. Now I think there are three. The two, the reasons, first of the reasons I thought there were, were a casual reason and a serious reason. And the casual re reason for preferring the single line is someone who says this. They say, look, I don't know about this stuff. I don't know about lines. I don't really read the Bible. I don't know. All I know is this. You do the best you can. Right? You, I'm sure you know people like that. You just do the best you can. And if there's a God, I'm sure God's reasonable. And someone like me, I'm trying. I'm not a jerk. I'm not bad. I just, you know, you do the best you can. God will let you in. That's works-based righteousness. That is a single-line view of life. It's a very casual single-line view of life, but it's a single-line, you know, works-based righteousness view of life. I'm, I'm trying. I'm a decent guy. Surely God will let me in. That's casual single-line. Then there's serious single-line. I have invested too much of my life in climbing that single-line to give it up now. I've done very well. Thank you very much. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm an 8 or a 9 at least. And the last thing I want to hear is that none of that counts for anything, and that ones and twos 
Christian slobs who haven't put forth nearly the effort that I have are going to walk right in and get the same as me. No way. I am way too invested in this. That's a serious preference for the single line. But there's a third way. This is what we're going to talk about today. I think it's a theological way. People say, no, theologically, I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't agree. I don't think the double line is how it works. I think theologically, the single line is how it works. That's what I, I think that's what the Bible teaches. And that kind of thinking, that kind of theology comes from the theology of personal rewards. Personal rewards. And a lot of it comes from these verses. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, which you probably hear sometimes referred to as the Bema seat, referred as the Bema seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. You're going to be judged at the Bema seat of Christ. He's going to look at the record of your life, and he's going to judge you, whether good or bad. So, so people would say, look, justification wiped away all your sins. But for everything you've done since then, you're going to have to stand before Christ and justify yourself. Also, Romans 14.10. These are the only verses, but these are actually the primary verses. Romans 14.10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. There's judgment coming. Now, like I said, there are other verses. There are verses where Jesus says, for example, when you're persecuted, blessed are you when you're persecuted, you're going to get rewards. There are other verses, if you just search the word rewards, lots of verses of rewards. But this idea of the judgment of Christ at the Bema Seat comes from these verses, and it sets up the theology, which is single-line theology. Single-line theology, hook, line, and sinker. 100% single-line. This says, you are saved, justified by grace. But after that, everything is by your hard work and effort. Sanctification is from hard work and effort. So what I did to get ready for the study is I looked at probably 20 or 30 commentaries in a row on these verses, the BBC to Christ and all the rest. Just to, And I didn't look at all of them, but I looked at a lot of them. And kind of just reading them in a row to get, you know, what are, they, what are they saying? What is the teaching on this? And here's one, for example, that expresses the, uh, how it's really the single line. It says, uh, most Christians don't know very much about the heavenly rewards, even though the New Testament has much to say on this subject. If I could summarize the biblical teaching in a few words, it would go like this. Salvation is always by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is a free gift that cannot be earned or deserved. So far, so good. But when we get to heaven, we will be judged on the basis of the life we live after coming to Christ. In that day, some people will see all that they have lived for go up in smoke. Others will receive great rewards. Here's another commentary. The first gift of life is not by works, but by faith in the work of a sufficient Redeemer. Wonderful. But after the miracle of the new birth has been accomplished, the Christian, to a large extent, carries his or her future in their hands. It's all on you. Maybe there's grace to help you along, but justification is by grace. Sanctification, hard work and effort. That's single-line theology. There's another one. There's another one that said, in heaven, all cups will be full, but some cups will be larger than others. <laughs> so this, this theology, I want to talk about the theology of it, but first of all, the tone of it, because you get a certain tone if you just read 30, 30, 20 or 30 of these in a row, you get a sense of the tone of where all the commentators are coming from to talk about this, right? And the tone for all of them is, it's very, very consistent. It's woe to you. Woe to you, like the one I read to you. Oh, many Christians do not know. Oh, what a day that will be. Oh, it's a warning. Let this be a warning to you. Let the, oh, here, here's one. 
what we should fear most, the Apostle Paul called the terror of the Lord, is lest at the end of a so-called Christian life that Jesus should shut the door in our face, the door not of heaven, you'll get into heaven, but of entrance into those higher festivities and sacred employments which await us yonder. So you'll get into heaven by grace, you see, but you won't get really rewarded. You won't get the full reward unless you can justify your life or the way you've lived. Now, some of them, not all of them, but some of them even said, when you get to the Bema Seat of Christ, all of your sins will be on display for everyone else to see. All of your sins will scroll like on some big stadium-sized screen behind you. Maybe we'll even roll a videotape. Here's like another commentary. All that we have hidden shall be revealed. The things which we have done in the body will come back to us, whether good or bad. Every pious thought and every thought of sin, every secret prayer and every secret curse, every unknown deed of charity and every hidden deed of selfishness. We will see them all again. And though we have not remembered them for years and perhaps have forgotten them altogether, we shall have to acknowledge that they are our own. It is not, not a solemn thing to stand for at the end of life. Let this be a warning to you. Woe to you. There were other commentators, that should be, to be fair, that said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. But, so, but unless you think this is kind of a minority view, my, uh, just last summer, my wife went to a Bible study here in Hudson, a women's Bible study. She came back and said, do you think all at the beam seat of Christ, all of our sins are going to be scrolled behind us on some like stadium-sized Megatron screen? And I said, I'm pretty sure your sins are forgiven at the cross. She said, well, that's not what they said at Bible study. They said a Bible study, you, you know, you're gonna when you go there, you think they're forgiven, but they're not. And and then and then I said, ah, we had a long conversation about it. But in prepping for this, I said, well, there, there's a bunch of people theologically that say that's exactly how it works. All your all your sins are gonna be scrolled. You thought they were forgiven, but no, they're not. So here's my point of the 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 the, the tone. All of them say, Woe to you. It's gonna be a bad day for you. Great day for me. Not so bad for me. <laughs> and they all kind of say, you know, there's crowns waiting for people that have done these great things. And, uh, you know, and I put it like here, you know, and stuff. And the reason I say, you know, kind of stuff is because when it gets to actually what the rewards are, they all trail off. A couple of them try to say, well, what are the rewards? What actually are they? And they say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really say, but it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Some of them, you know, started to speculate and say, well, just think of what you love. What do you love the most on earth? You're going to get more of that. I had a friend who was in Bible study once. He said, yeah, I know what I want. I want a red Corvette. I want a red Corvette. I said, my whole life I've been wanting a red Corvette. I can't afford a red Corvette. Fine, I'm going to get a red Corvette. Maybe multiple red Corvettes in heaven. That's what I want. Rewards, personal rewards. But they all, they all talked about this. They said, they are going to be personal rewards for you. There'll be things that you like for all of your good behavior. You know, maybe against, weighed against your bad behavior. But personal rewards for you. Here's the point that I want to make of the tone. If I was a theologian doing this and studying the Bible and said, wait a second, this is really how it works. You know, I became a Christian when I was four, at age 14. And I said, wait a second, what this is saying is that I have to go in front of a holy Christ who dwells in unapproachable light, who's so holy, and I have to go justify my life for everything I've done since age 14. Everything before 14 was wiped away. But everything after that, all my sins, I had to stand in front of Jesus squarely on the shoulders of my own righteousness and justify myself. That is not good news. That's a horror show. If that was my theology, I would be despondent. I'd be inconsolable. And none of these commentators take that tone. 
they're not they're not saying with glee, oh, I'm the best, I'm gonna get ruined. They don't go that far. But none of them are in despair. They're all like saying, well, bad, gonna be a bad day for many Christians who don't realize they have need to wake up. Bad day for you. Not so bad for me. The only one, in fact, that I saw that had any sense of this, of despair, what this would really be like, was Martin Luther. I got a quote from him I'll read for you later. But everybody else, like, okay, you know, not bad. Now, I want to be as fair to them as I possibly can be, because I think people who write these kind of commentaries, they're full-time Christian work. They're saying, I'm doing these things for the Lord. You know, someday there's got to be some reward for that, right? I've given up all these things in life, and I've given my time, my life to the Lord. Surely there's something waiting for me there. But the, So maybe there's a personal reason why the rewards theology is appealing. But theologically, I think there's two reasons. One is it's a, it's a place for all my good works. Theologically, if you say, if, if everything's by grace, in Christianity, everything's by grace, it's all by grace, then where do my good works fit in? If I do all these good things, what happens to all those good works? They just float off into the ether? They don't count for anything? And the, the beauty of the single-line theology is that it, it gives you a coherent place for all your good works. See, there they are notches on my belt. I'm climbing the single line. I'm going to get rewarded someday. I get credit. I get recognition. There's a place for all the good things I do. They're not just lost for all eternity. There's a place for them. So there's an attraction there. But secondly, it's a solution to the problem of license. And license is a big problem. License is a real problem. Paul talks about license in Romans. He talks about it in Galatians. In Galatians 5, we'll get to in a minute. He says, it's your freedom that Christ set us free. But then he says, don't, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So Paul's, Paul is saying, license is possible. If you say, wait a second, let me get this straight. It's all by grace. Yeah, that's right. God loves me no matter what I do, right? Hmm, really? It, it's the instant, it's very human reaction to say, so you're saying I can do anything I want? That's the problem of license. The problem of license is a real problem of the Christian life. But, but I want you to think of those, those two illustrations that I put up, the left side, the right side, the single line illustration. They're, they're both paradigms. They're both lenses through which you read scripture. They're both lenses through which you see life. So, for example, the single line person would look at the double lines through the lens of the single line. And they would say, those double lines are cute. That's very nice. If that helps you climb the single line, I'm all for it. So they'll see the double lines through the lens of the single line and interpret it that way. And, it, and what I realized doing this is that their single line, theology, people who believe in that, approach the problem of license through the single line. So in other words, they're looking at the problem of license through the lens of the single line. What they're saying is, look, the single line has to be how it works. It has to be how it works. Because if it's not, how am I ever going to get someone to climb the single line? If you take away the single line, if you tell me single line is justification is by grace, but sanctification is by hard work and effort. If you take that away, how's anyone going to work for anything? It'll be bedlam, mayhem. No one's going to do anything. If, I, if there's no single line, no one's climbing the single line. So it's self-justifying. But you're, they're approaching the problem of, the, of, of license through the lens of the single line and seeing the problem that way. Now, by the way, what is this? What is the solution to these two problems in the double line. Where's the place for my good works? That's that dotted line rising from the bottom. And the, that's probably the main, one of the major contributions of that whole two-line illustration is that little dotted line, because it gives you visually a place to say, well, that's where my change life fits in. I'm not getting credit for in God's eyes. It's not the point of my Christian life, my life, but my life is changing. But that's why you can, but seeing it there helps you say, well, that's where all my, all my good works fit in. That's how they fit in. And then the problem of license and the double lines, 
license of the double lines, if you say, well, I can shoot, if I'm saved, I can do anything I want, your lines are converging together. You're only saying that if your lines are getting really, really small. In other words, if you say, I'm not that bad of a sinner and his holiness standard is not that great, I'm not that bad. I'm saved. Oh, yeah. Ho-hum. I'm saved. Big deal. What you've done is you've compressed the lines and you're not that grateful. If your lines are really diverging, if you're growing in Christ and your lines are getting wider and wider and wider and you're seeing more and more what a great salvation it was, you get, you're getting more and more where you say, I cannot believe God would save someone like me. Your gratitude grows, your amazement for your salvation grows, and license just fades in the background. But if you're living a life of license, hey, you know, shoot, <laughs> I can do anything I want. Your lines have come together. And that brings up the theological problems. Okay, here's the implications of this whole personal rewards kind of theory. Because, guys, maybe I'm just wrong about this. Maybe I'm all wrong about this. Maybe I just want the double lines to be true. Maybe the single line really is the way Christianity works, and I'm just dead wrong. Okay, well, if the single line is how it works, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And the implications are that it's completely counterproductive. Because if I feel like I'm, if, if I'm cajoled to move up the single line, I feel like I'm doing well, I'm going to get lots of rewards. My my lower line is come is coming up because I feel like I'm a, I'm a seven, I'm an eight, I'm a nine, I'm moving up a single line. That means my lower line, my awareness of my sin is coming up. And if I'm thinking I'm a seven, eight, or nine, what I'm saying is the, the holiness of God is achievable in the flesh. And I bring the holiness of God down, down, down to a place where I can reach it. My lines are converging and I'm not that grateful completely counterproductive in the Christian life. Secondly, even more openly, the whole reward, the idea of saying, look, think, come to Christ, think about what's in it for you. Personal rewards, it's a blatant direct appeal to the flesh. Look, our, our core sin problem is self-absorption, self-centeredness. And if I say, run your whole Christian life thinking about what's in it for you, I'm appeal, I'm fanning the flames of your self-centeredness. I'm making your, if it, and then if it works, if it works, and you say, I'm, I'm a 9.5, now you just become like a little Pharisee, you become self-righteous. It's wholly, wholly counterproductive. But worse than that, it guts the gospel distinctive. One of the books I was reading about the personal rewards theology was start off by saying, oh, this is meant to be so motivational in the Christian life. This is really going to motivate you, you know, to climb a single line and get all these personal rewards. And then in the middle of the book, it said, you know, why, why should you be surprised it works this way? Why are you surprised? All religions work this way. Carrots and sticks. You know, blessings for good behavior, punishments for bad behavior. All religions are like that. Why should you be surprised that Christianity is any different from any of these religions? Because that is the one thing that makes Christianity different from all the religions. Grace. You just you just destroyed the one distinctive Christianity has. You just said, yeah, it's just like every it's just like religion. No, it's not. <laughs> that's what Jesus died for. That's what that's what Christianity is all about, is grace. But this guts the gospel distinctive. And then what it does, and I kind of covered this already, it creates a two-tiered system of standing. First, there's justification based, justification standing, tier one, or if you want to call it that, based on grace. But sanctification standing is based on works. And you say, well, you get, you and think of it this way, you get to stand before God because of grace. You get to heaven because of grace. But you're standing before God, his evaluation of you at the Bema seat, that's based on your works. Two tiers of standing. Okay. So, if that's all the case, then what does Galatians have to say about it? So, again, if you're on audio, what I have here on the screen is a little table. I'm going to have a series of questions. I've got three columns in the way that three, three groups of people would answer these questions. The, first, the Judaizers. Secondly, 
the people who teach rewards theology, and then the book of Galatians. And if you haven't guessed by now, I think that people that are teaching rewards theology are, are off. I don't think that's right. And I think that the rewards theology, in fact, the teachers that are modern-day Judaizers, which I'll explain in a minute, they would not agree. In fact, they'd be very insulted that I just said that. But I'll show you what I mean. We recall from last week, and Greg talked about the first half of Galatians, that the whole book of Galatians was written to refute the idea of the Judaizers. We talked about it last week. The Judaizers were coming and saying, Jesus alone isn't enough. You need Jesus plus. And Galatians is written to refute all that and say, no, that's not true. That's what the Judaizers were teaching. And I think rewards are similar. But here, let's try the first question, okay? The first question is, do you need to obey the law to be saved? Judaizers would say, yes, that's what we're teaching. Acts 15, verse 1, you need to obey the law to be saved. That's what the Judaizers are saying. This, this is, the rewards people come out and say, no, that's not what we're saying. See, we are not Judaizers. How dare you say that? In fact, we're insulted you would call us Judaizers. That's ridiculous. We're not saying you need to follow the law to be saved. We're saying salvation is purely by grace. We agree with Galatians. Salvation's by grace. We're not, we're not Judaizers. We're talking about sanctification. Sanctification is through hard work and effort. But, you know, salvation is purely by grace. I agree with Galatians that salvation is by hard work and effort. But I'm not talking about salvation now. I'm talking about how you live a Christian life. Sanctification, that's hard work and effort. And so I think that it's, to stay in this kind of rewards theology mindset, you need to kind of keep Galatians in a justification box and say it's really talking about justification. Galatians isn't talking about sanctification and how you live your life, and that you're sanctified by grace. It's just talking about justification. It's refuting the Judaizers. The problem is Galatians does talk about both justification and sanctification, especially in the beginning of chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians 3, verse 3, should just make the single line kind of crumble to dust in your mind. In other words, the whole notion of the single line is that I'm begun by the Spirit, but I'm going to be perfected in the flesh. And Paul says, are you crazy? He kind of uses a sarcastic tone. Are you kidding? The point of having on this page right now, though, is just say, when you're talking about being perfected, that is the textbook definition of sanctification. That's, that's being perfected. And Paul's saying, how does that happen? Do you think that happens through your hard work and effort? That's not how it works. The reason I feel this way about in my own theology, Paul is saying the single line is not how Christianity works. But he's, he's saying Galatians is definitely about sanctification, how you live your Christian life. Let's look at one more verse on that. And that's chapter four, verse nine. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to people who are considering Christianity. Let me tell you how you can come to Christ. He's saying, you've already come to God. You've been known by God. You're definitely Christians. How is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He's talking about how you live your Christian life, your sanctification, not just justification. So, back to the chart. Two, I'm going to do two questions at once on the chart, because they're all both kind of different ways of looking at the same question. First of all, do you need to obey the law to be fully accepted by God? To be fully accepted by God? And the Judaizers would say, yes. You need to be circumcised and follow all the Mosaic law to be fully accepted by God, not just Jesus. Jesus is a necessary but insufficient condition to be fully accepted by God. The rewards theology would say, yes, 
You need to obey the law. To one of you fully, if you want to stand before Christ with the beam of seed and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not everyone's going to hear that. Jesus alone will get to get you, you know, you'll get to stand before, but to have that full acceptance by God, to hear, to hear those kinds of words, it's all on your shoulders. To be fully accepted by God, Jesus alone is not enough. Galatians says, no, it's not how it works. Another way I have is IE. It's another way of saying the same question. Is Jesus alone enough to be fully accepted by God? Judaizers, no. Rewards theology, no. Jesus alone is not enough to be fully accepted. Galatians says, yes, Jesus alone is enough to be fully accepted by God, 100%. Do you need to obey the law? Judaizers, yes. That's what we've been saying. Rewards people, yes, to climb the single line. Galatians, yes. Yes, you do. You do need to follow the law. Galatians is not all for license, saying, you know, you're justified by faith. Go ahead and do whatever you want. Paul's very hard. I will go to a few passages. I'll show you. It's very anti-license. But what he says, what Galatians says is way harder than obeying the rules. Judaizers said you need to follow the Mosaic law. Rewards people, you know, obey the rules and climb the single line and get all the, do all these great things to climb up the single line. Galatians says live in line with the gospel. Way, way, way harder. Live in line with the gospel. Look, I just gave you a couple examples. I used, these, I used these examples about a year ago when I was talking to you, so they'll be familiar with you. And, uh, we, and we talk about them from time to time. Do you, do you hate it when people look down their nose at you? I hate it when people look down their nose at me. Do you hate rich people? Do you hate filthy rich people? I grew up in a blue-collar family in a blue-collar town. Rich people hate rich people. Think they're better than me? Think you're better than me? Think you're better than me, huh? Rich people. Look down your nose at me. Hate that. Maybe you don't hate rich people. Maybe you hate coastal elites. I talked to them a year ago on a blog, and we talk about it from time to time. You hate, do you, maybe you hate, I hate people on the East Coast and West Coast that look down their nose at me. Talk about me as flyover country. When I talked about this a year ago, I said, do you think they're looking down their nose at you? I'm here to tell you, they're looking down their nose at you way more than you think they are. <laughs> You're not making it up. They are genuinely looking down their nose at you. Okay? If the gospel is true, if I was really, I don't want to talk about you, I want to talk about me. I'm not living in line with the gospel. If I was really living in line with the gospel, I would say those people are not looking down their nose at me enough. I am way more deplorable than they think I am. I have a friend who lives here in Akron. He has a, he has a friend who lives in New York City who's a Catholic priest. That priest went down to the gay pride parade one day. I may have told you this example last time. I went down to the gay pride parade. He's watching the gay pride parade. And one of the people in the parade came by and he was standing there in his collar, spit on. And he was interviewed. And they said, this guy spit on you. How did that make you feel? And his answer, without missing a beat, was, it's okay. It's okay. It's better than I deserve. That's somebody who gets the gospel. Like instinctively, reactively. My action reaction would be so, I'd be filled with that rage. Oh, dear, look, dear, look at what they did. Did you see that? Did you see that? You saw it, didn't you? I'd be so enraged, so angry. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. It's better than I deserve. That's living in line with the gospel. If you want to know how hard it is to live in line with the gospel, Paul had to rebuke the apostle Peter. Peter wasn't living in line with the gospel. Following the rules is easy. The people who follow the rules look at this and say, oh, that's easy believism. Let me tell you, easy believism is just following the rules and feeling good about yourself. Living in line with the gospel is a whole lifelong endeavor. It's so different, so much more difficult. Okay. Do you get any credit in God's eyes for obeying the law? Judaizers, yes. 
That's the point. Re rewards people. Yes, you do get credit in God's eyes. You get all kinds of rewards, right? That's why you're that's why you're doing it. Galatians, no. No. And this is a big point. In Galatians, you say you do all these good things, do good works. They're not meritorious. You do them, but not to get credit in God's eyes. They're not meritorious. Should you still do them? Absolutely. Do you get points? No. They're not meritorious. Then why do you do them? Well, Judaizers to be saved, rewards people, to get rewards. Red Corvettes in heaven. Galatians, out of sheer gratitude. I just do, I want to live this way out of sheer gratitude. Okay, with all that in mind, how does sanctification work? How does sanctification work? What does Galatians say about sanctification? And how does it work? Four things we're going to, we're going to cover. Uh, how sanctification works in the book of Galatians. First of all, realize your standing is completely complete. Secondly, don't slip back to the single line. Third, change what you love. And fourth, live in line with the way you're designed. First of all, realize your standing is completely complete. Here's a section actually someone could read. Actually, I want someone to read from the screen. Rex, can you see it? Can you just... Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is really key to understanding your Christian life. Your standing before God is completely complete, 100%. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. You can't be at 120%. You can't be at 80%. Through what Christ has done, you're standing before him 100% complete. And what Paul's trying to get through here, what he's trying to say to the Galatians is, look, you, you have a status change. You're not a slave based on conditional acceptance. You're a son. You've moved over into sonship, unconditional acceptance. And the, I didn't print it for the interest of time, but the parallel passage is, is the second half of Galatians 4, which talks about Hagar. You remember that passage? He says, there's the, Hagar had Ishmael. She was the slave woman. And then Sarah had Isaac. That's the child of freedom. And what he's doing, he says, there's, there's a child of slavery. There's a child of promise. Child of slavery and child of promise. And what he's, what he's talking about is the child of slavery has conditional acceptance. If you obey, then you'll be accepted. The child of promise has unconditional acceptance. I promise to love you no matter what. And that actually is the fundamental tension that drives the entire Old Testament forward. That is the fundamental tension of the Bible. God says in both things in the Old Testament, I will love you no matter what you do. Promise. It's unconditional, completely unconditional. And on the other hand, if you obey, if you, you must obey me to receive the promises. It is completely conditional. Child of promise, child of slavery. Which one is it? It's because the son, who was the child of promise, fulfilled all the conditions of the law for us on our behalf so that we get all the blessings of sonship so that we can be called sons. And therefore, we have sons. We have a complete status change. We, and Paul says in Galatians 4, we are children of promise, unconditional. Your standing is completely complete. You move from a slave to an adopted son. Your, your standing is not conditional. Child of unconditional promise, not of conditional slavery. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com.
Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.